0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey, now. John Epperson. Hey, everybody. Dave Kimura. Hello, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, Dave recommended a topic for us. We're going to talk about troubleshooting. Now, I'm wondering, Dave, is there like some story behind this? You know, some pain you saw someone going through, or I don't know.
1: I don't know if it's pain that I've seen someone going through, just more of a pattern. And I think it initially starts with, do we understand the questions that we are asking? Do we understand or know how to ask good questions, providing relevant information, not too much information, and then how to identify or diagnose issues on the front end and also on the back end and our environment in general.
0: I'm frequently surprised at how many companies are running their apps in production without any way of knowing when things go wrong, or who are running them in production and not really having a way of knowing where things are slowing down. That's why I recommend that people use a service like AppSignal. AppSignal plugs into your application seamlessly, whether you're using Rails, Phoenix, or something else, and provides you a way of knowing when things go wrong, when things are going slow, And what other problems your application may be facing so that you can fix them and provide a seamless user experience for those who are using your app. So whether you're starting a new app or working on an existing app, you should check out AppSignal and see how it can work for you. Go to AppSignal.com. That's A-P-P-S-I-G-N-A-L.com.
1: So it's just something where I'm a part of several different development communities. I also get comments on Drift Ruby. And a lot of times the questions that are coming in, people asking for help, like they legitimately have a problem. They are just not either articulating it in a way that anyone can help them or they are not doing their own research or due diligence because either they just don't know how or some other reason. And so I just thought it would be a good topic to say, you know, hey, as developers, we all run into these kind of problems. Some of us know immediately how to resolve them, but then other times, especially if you're newer to the game, you may have a lot of trouble trying to figure out, like, how would you go about solving these kind of issues? So I thought it'd be a good topic.
0: Sounds good to me. I'll tell you. So I've 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 been working on this contract and we're writing scripts that essentially integrate two systems through their APIs. So we're writing glue code that sits in the middle. And sometimes that gets tricky because Is it my code? Is it their code? (laughs) Right? So maybe you'll give some tips that I can pick up because sometimes it gets really hairy.
1: Yeah. And depending on the kind of information that you're passing through, it could also Mm -hmm. be very sensitive. Mm -hmm. Like if you were passing over a lot of personal identifiable information, you know, sometimes the easiest thing to do, especially if your application's not big, is to take a snapshot, throw it in your local environment, and then replicate the issue, but mm-hmm. that's not always the best route from a security standpoint, right? So, but if we just kind of started the very basic, we have our development machines. You know, do we really understand how our development environment is set up, or is that a impediment often as you are doing your development work? Now, I'm not saying that you have to go out and buy the latest and greatest, fastest machine but do you understand your operating system are you able to identify is this issue local or if i deploy are we going to see the exact same kind of issue
2: i think yep. i mean i think a lot of this also gets into the difference between troubleshooting your app right and troubleshooting your environment which for me are very separate issues right because I, my experience with people has been that it's not really a big deal like you If you create an environment, some people who are not very good at troubleshooting their machines are still going to be productive at dealing with an app. But if you're like a single man shop or something like this, right, like you're stuck with having to do both things. So, you know, that you can get away with not being able to troubleshoot your machine if you're on a team where you don't have to. But if you're on a really small team or or that one man shop, you're going to have to be able to do both things.
1: Yeah. And I think things have really gotten a lot better over the past couple of years, it used to be a lot more of a concern. But if you switched over to a Apple Silicon machine, and if you were still having to support legacy applications that are running Ruby two, three, two, four, two, five, three to four to five, whatever, then you could have issues if you try to boot those up right off the bat, you know, on your new machine. Because mm compiling the ARM version of Ruby is just not going to work. I had to deal with that when I switched over to Apple Silicon. And I had a couple of legacy applications that the business had no intention of maintaining. They were just going to let it naturally, through natural attrition, sunset itself. So the first thing I did was Dockerize these applications the first time I needed to work on them. And that allowed me to get a running application on my local environment. And if you've ever had to work on a Rails 4 or previous application and deal with the libv8 or the Ruby Racer, it's a real pain, especially if you have updated your application and time has passed, or if you've updated your environment and time has passed, you're now running a newer version of libv8. You're not going to be able to bundle the gems and it's just, it's a nightmare. So I think being able to get outside of these kind of issues can make us more productive developers. And my pretty much go-to answer for that is dockerize your application. Use docker on your local development environment to do your development. That way you don't have to worry about a lot of these system dependencies that you otherwise may really kind of struggled to get through them.
2: 100%. And I think, especially especially if you're maintaining multiple apps at the same time. Yeah. Because, it, I mean, it, I, think it's, I think your use case is really, really, like one of the best use cases for Docker, right? Hey, I'm maintaining multiple apps. Some of them are really old and some of them are not, right? When you have that big mixture, you know, it's a big deal. But even if you don't have the mixture, it still helps to be able to separate everything a lot. Yeah, Multiple apps is a huge, great use case for Docker.
1: And I know that Docker does have learning overhead. You have to understand what is the container? What is the image? how is How does my data persist? How do I port forward? And those are all legitimate concerns. But I think as developers, we would be much better in the long run if we took the time to learn those things, you know, learn about the Docker Dockerfile and Docker Compose.
3: I'm on the fence with this. <laughs> <I> <laughs> don't get me out. wrong, I, I love Docker. And as you get more experience, it's definitely more helpful, especially managing many, many things. But like, I'm just thinking back to when I first learned Rails, which ultimately is how I learned Ruby. <laughs> and you know, it was hard just to understand like model view controller. And I mean, that not that Rails is like traditional in that way, You know, even the implementation of model view controller isn't that great. But it's like, uh, it's so hard to get started with the framework from from ground zero. And uh, like, I remember having to, you know, debug the most minor things, you know, let's say like, oh, I missed an end in my controller, which I know there's like gems now to help me find my ends. But like just, just the most simple nuances of things were hard to troubleshoot just from the regular log with just like the system Ruby and Rails running that adding a whole extra layer on top of that that I don't understand to begin with. <laughs> I feel like maybe for for beginners and like getting people into the community and using Rails, maybe Docker isn't that great.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and if you're just getting started, Docker may not be the answer because you don't have legacy applications to work on. Yep. If you're just getting started learning for yourself. But I think having an understanding when there is a brute command from a tutorial that it's telling you to run, that you actually understand what it's doing. You know, Those kind of things, taking the time to learn you know, instead of just copy-pasting from the internet I think is going to serve you better in the long run.
2: Yeah, okay. So, I mean, there's I, I 100% agree, right? Like, My sense, though, has been that there's like two kind of like groups of people that are like sort of joining the community, right? There's the, hey, I'm like starting just trying to figure this out. I'm like doing my app all by myself. Right. And uh, yeah, I 100 percent agree. Like that person, you probably don't want to say, all right, you also need to do Docker and you also need to do these 10 other things. Right. That's a lot to lay on that person. But the other cohort of people that are joining the community are people that are joining teams. And for those people, like I think like the right suggestion is to say do what your team is doing, right? Like, and that's like basically what I always tell somebody that's like just starting is it's like, okay, what's your support system gonna be like? You're joining a team, so do do what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Follow their things. Even even if everything you heard me say in the past 10 minutes is in complete disagreement with them, just do what they have to say, right? Because they're going to be your support system every day. And if they're doing Docker, do Docker, you know, like, they're going to theoretically support you in that, things like that. And if they're not, maybe when you're you're in and you're feeling a little more confident in things like, and you want to do it on your own local machine, that's, that's cool. But day one, it, yeah, I agree. It's going to trip you up.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that, John. Even if they are going against best practices, and crazy, crazy development setups, if you stick with how they are doing it for your work-related things, then when something goes wrong, that lead or senior on the team is actually able to help you instead of spending the first hour trying to understand what your environment actually is. So that's a good point.
2: I think all of these discussions that we have make the presumption that you're confident enough in your abilities that you're willing to experiment on your own. Because otherwise, yeah, you just do what your team does is the correct answer 100% of the time. So back on the topic
3: of of troubleshooting, (laughs) I'm sorry to derail (laughs) us (laughs) with the Docker argument. What do you guys do when you're like first? I mean, I know that like the spectrum for where you start your troubleshooting is like kind of huge. Like, where do you go first? Like, what's your first thing? When you're like troubleshooting just something in the Rails stack.
1: So can I deviate from your question specifically <laughs> about the Rails stack? Because I have a very intimate computer background. You know, I did this admin work for many years. I've done programming for double that amount of time. I've had computers growing up, super big computer nerd. But every now and then I run into an issue that just completely floors me. And I had this a few weeks ago. And it was nothing to do with programming, but it was an environment issue. So I was doing a recording on This Week on Rails. It's a video coverage of the newsletter that I do. And the issue that I had was I was getting some blips in the audio. So there was some artifacts coming in every few seconds, and I could not figure it out. I had upgraded to macOS Ventura. And I was using ScreenFlow to record these, but I thought it was just some hardware issues or something else. It was really bad. So what it ended up being was there was an issue with ScreenFlow and macOS Ventura recording at forty-eight kilohertz. If you record at forty-four point one kilohertz, then the issue's completely fine. Oh, so wow. trying to coming to that conclusion was extremely difficult. I ended up for a while, because I didn't have time to really get into the intricate details, revert back to macOS Monterey. So I rolled back my operating system for a bit. And then I thought, you know what, macOS Ventura is out now, it's stable, there's going to be more use cases, I'm going to upgrade to see if maybe something has fixed itself. Nope, it was still doing it. So I was at a crossroads. Do I want to get a second computer running Monterey just so I can continue troubleshooting this but not lose productivity? Do I want to roll back to Monterey and not be on the latest and greatest OS? Or do I want to see if I'm able to replicate this? So that's when I really started doing some more investigative work. I then pulled up another screen recorder application recording with the same kind of settings and there was no issue. So that tells me that it's not related to my operating system and it's not related to the amount of data that I'm trying to record, like a 4K video feed or anything like that. It had something to do with the application I was recording with. So I then go to the forums of ScreenFlow, uh, ScreenFlow, Telestream forums and stuff, and I found out there was someone else who had that issue. And there had been some back and forth with the developers and it turns out that's where i discovered about that 48 kilohertz issue so it's something that i never even thought of but i was able to do my research once i had a more a better idea of what i needed to be searching about so even though i really have very little idea about audio and stuff i knew something wasn't right and i was able to go through a process of elimination of what the issue could or could not be, and by that I was then able to then do the research online to then find my answer. So now, until ScreenFlow fixes it, I'm recording at 44.1 kilohertz.
2: Yep, that's really fun. I, you know, I've had <laughs> fun excursions like
3: that. I mean, how much of how much of this is trial and error then? <laughs> how do we get away from trial and error? <laughs> I mean, both. Well what dave described
2: is what is not exactly trial and error right like so so he described like basically trying to say okay let me create a test right so i can determine it's not these things right then you try to eliminate some things and then you're like okay well It's related to this thing. So let's try Google searching. And then, you know, after you Google search, you know, if you don't find anything, you know, maybe you go on to other steps. In this case, they found something in the Google search. But like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I start off with trial and error. So so to to like start us off there, like because at this point, so let's go back to the Rails because you you asked about Rails, right? So when I run into a problem with Rails, the first thing that I do, right, because I've done Rails for a long time now is I'm like, hmm, it's probably not all these things, right? It's probably this. And so like, I'll trial and error in that area until, you know, uh, let's say, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes have passed. And I'm like, all right, something's wrong. I can't figure this out. Then Then I probably go to Google search, right? Then if I can't find something there, then I probably start like stepping back and creating tests for it. So I generally don't. Dive into like that testing thing. That's usually my like third or so step. An hour later, yeah. I, I will say that say, does get me into yeah. trouble sometimes, but yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just
0: going to say. I mean, trial and error. A lot of times, you just double check the obvious stuff, and that's the trial and error I go through. And then I go through some of the other things you mentioned.
1: And because we are using someone else's code, essentially, that is what Rails is. It's a, you know a massive number of people who have created something that we are then using. If I run into an issue that I cannot explain, I'll create my own dummy application to try to recreate it with the minimum number of interferences. So meaning that it's a fresh Rails 7 application, I've not done anything else to it, and then I set up the example. That will not only allow me to get community feedback if I am able to replicate it there, So someone else can then, because I can share that repo, maybe it's not proprietary information. I can share it with someone else. They can have a look at it, help me out. Or if it is, in fact, a bug with a gem or something like that, then I can share the repo and create an issue on that particular project And then the community as a whole would be better for it once it gets fixed.
0: Do you do that before or after looking at issues on the repo and going to... I almost said Reddit, but I meant Stack Overflow.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I actually never go to Stack Overflow as a direct uh, path. Right. If a Google result takes me there, then I'll go there. But it's not my first... uh,
0: That's my pattern too, actually. But yeah.
1: So I mean, I try to do as much, you know, the obvious stuff like you guys said first, and then I will, if I just cannot explain it. And that comes with experience to know, okay, something really funky is going on here. Usually it's been around some kind of asset that I've made a change to a file, but then my assets aren't getting updated, something really strange is going on. That was especially more common in the Webpacker days.
2: So, so, so caching problems, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, how should I put this? Cause I wanted, I wanted to go back to the stack overflow thing, but, but like, I also wanted to hit like, you know, there's the two hard problems in computer science, right. Naming and caching. And anytime that we're dealing with assets, right. We're talking about a lot of different caching things going on. And I feel like that's, that has always been one of the places where I End up having those problems that I can't explain around assets because of caching things. Right. Well, and it's a behavior that you don't always control,
0: or you can't. you know, because it it has all kinds of rules for how it manages the caching, and so
2: you may yeah. not get a consistent results. Or there's multiple result. layers of caching, yeah. and then and then if you want to like test something, you're like, okay, I need to remember all of the different places that caching could happen, and I mm-hmm. need to go remember how to reset all of them so testing those can can be harder so it's not i mean and this actually gets into like one of the things like i tend to put testing last in my system right so in my troubleshooting system so even if i think that i know for example like all the places that i need to go to cache like i'm probably going to do some google searching first to see if somebody ran into a similar problem right before i begin to design my test because i consider that to be a high effort thing with risky rewards, right? Like I may or may not hit the thing, you know, hit the problem. So high effort things tend to go last in my system and low effort things go first, right? So for me, Google searching and racking my brain for previous, you know, things that I can remember are like, those are the first steps for me. Yeah. One other tool that I find
0: is low, low effort is doing a git diff back one or two commits because typically what'll happen is something will change and that's why it's not working. And so I can go and I can eliminate anything that didn't change since the last time I knew it worked. And so I can go, I anyway, I use that to kind of narrow things down. Usually if you've been working in the code, you know about where it is anyway, but sometimes I'm just completely lost.
1: Yeah, and you can also do a git checkout of that specific Uh commit so if you yep. do a git log, you'll get that commit hash for yep. each commit. And you can go back if you do a git checkout on that specific commit and then run the application to see if you can reproduce it. If you were not able to reproduce it, or then if the it was yeah. Yeah, something that was recently introduced.
2: It's also like It also depends on like the nature of your code base too. Yeah. So for example, I worked in a code base where There's a lot of committers and there were long running branches and there was a lot of like rebasing uh, that went on. And and I'm not saying that any of these things are evil in and of themselves. But in that kind of environment, it was actually like I would be like, huh, this worked yesterday. But just because it worked yesterday doesn't mean that it was a recent commit. It could have Mm -hmm. been something from a while ago. Someone rebased and did some. Merging and the whole entire history just got changed on me, so it can be hard to find it in that kind of. That's true. So depending on your environment, some of these techniques may or may not apply. Is all I'm getting at, you know.
0: Yep. One other one that I'm curious where you all put it, right? Because it sounds like we all reach for the intuitive thing that you know is is the least amount of effort. Where do you put the debugger? So like a by bug or
2: a pry or
0: you know tools like
2: that. I'm very fast to jump into pry but it kind of depends on like what the problem is. So, for example, if I'm dealing with assets, pry is not very helpful, but if I, you know, if I'm having a logic problem like, yeah. I'm actually probably going to hit up pry really fast. Also, if I hit like if it's if it's something that I intuitively think is a logical issue, like I'm going to not be going to Google for that because yeah. Google isn't going to help me fix my logical issues. Google's just going to help me fix things that it, somebody else's code is causing a problem with my code, right? So the Rails framework, I'm using it wrong or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You no, know, admittedly, I don't use Pry or by bug. I'm a big fan of emoji debugging. So just puts debugging and I'll put some fire emojis or something in there just so when I tail the logs, I see it pop out there really quickly and easily. But
0: Oh, I haven't. Thought about that? I always just type something in, like explode here or something. Yeah, and then, and then it comes man, back and it, it says, use them. <laughs> "I don't know how." I don't know how to
2: explode. I mean, for for me, I feel like both are kind of like highly overlapping, right? Because you know, I mean, what's what I do when I hop into Pry most of the time is I'm kind of inspecting variables. So mm-hmm. I'll use puts to, you know, print out like some stuff before I get to you know someplace, right? And then I'll be like, okay, based off of all those putses, right? It's kind of like using the watcher in an actual debugger, right? Like you're you want to watch your history as you go through all the steps and things. So for me, the puts becomes all the history, and then I get to whatever location that I'm, you know, having some sort of problem in it. And now I'm in pry, and I'm like, hey, what's my variable value here? And then because I'm in pry, if If my variable value isn't what I expect it to be, I can now muck around and look at stuff too. Speaking of debuggers, I
0: haven't used it extensively, but RubyMine actually has a debugger that's built in, right? So you tell it to run your app and then you can set breakpoints and you can run it. I haven't set anything like that up in VS Code. To be perfectly honest, I don't even know. I'm sure there are extensions that'll do it, but do you all use any of those kinds of debuggers?
1: I think if I was starting out, I would probably invest some time in my tooling to investigate that. And I have played around with the debugger within VS Code. And it does, it can work for Rails apps. But I just, I'm at a point where I don't do that. I'll just rely on the puts debugging.
3: I'm a huge fan of Ruby Jard. <laughs> Ruby it is Jard. so cool. <laughs> it is very hard to go back any other way.
0: <laughs> what, what What is Ruby Jard? I don't know if I know that one.
3: They call it just another Ruby debugger, but it it gives you all like contextual stuff based on the current mm-hmm. stack frame you're in in Ruby. Uh, and so you can see what all the different uh, instance variables are or, or things like that that are in line to wherever you say, "Hey, debugger, stop. It's very similar to Pry in a way, except it gives mm-hmm. you a lot more context and you could dig so far deep into the current uh, context. It's just incredible. I do, I do find myself getting away from it for the new uh, IRB stuff and doing binding IRB a lot more, but mm-hmm. there's just so much that gets missing <laughs> that it's, you know, once you get your groove with something, it's hard to go back. Right.
0: Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development-focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people Uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question and then we'll just rotate people through. So we'll, we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on gather town. And so after the, the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town, and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So
2: there you go. So I just looked it up. It looks like Jard is it like it's pry and buy underneath, but it also looks like it. So pry has there's like a pry debug or something like this. And it looks like Jard is not using that, but it has its own debugger to go around with. So, and it, it looks pretty, and it displays some nice looking stuff. Mm-hmm.
3: It looks cool. Yeah, one of the things I can I see I why you would like it. it. Yeah, I, I really like. It has like a a personalization, like customization stuff. So you can even get it so that it has customizations per application. So, I mean, I've gotten to the point where I, I even have it set up for certain applications to have special things in it it's so easy to use
0: right i'll have to check it out and see how it compares
3: because nice. i'm not like
2: a buy bug power user or anything so
0: i don't, I don't think i'll lose oh. anything by switching yeah. so
2: on the debugger versus like pry before we like completely leave like i think that like the pry jarred you know like the whole repl debugging right i think so I've had this discussion with somebody before, and I think that REPL debugging basically effectively replaces debuggers, right? Because the things that you want from a debugger can generally be replicated in a REPL debugger most of the time. And and then a REPL debugger also gives you things that, the, uh, that a debugger does not. And so I think effectively, like even though they are different, I think that REPL debugging kind of just obsoletes, you know, Debuggers, when, when they're available, right? Because not all languages can do that. I mean,
0: effectively, you're putting in a breakpoint that calls a method that gives you access to the context that it's running in. Right. And either way, whether you have a visual debugger or a command line debugger, you're limited to you know the quality of the tooling and the information that it knows how to get to. So I, I agree with you to that extent. Sometimes the visual debuggers just give you a whole lot more information just right out of the box is the only comparison that I would make that makes it different, right? So I'm thinking more like the the web tools, right? So if you put a debugger in your JavaScript, instead of having to query it for the context, it will show you the context, right?
2: Because it just loads it all yep. into the UI. But to be clear, I would note that I would consider the JavaScript tooling to also be a REPL debugger most of the time, right? Because you almost always have access to the console right there. Yes, it's kind of both. But yeah. Sure. And I mean I I think that we're looking at like yeah, some overlap as well.
0: Yeah. Right. But here. but for the most part I agree with you, right? You're telling it where to stop and then you're looking for the information you need.
1: Yeah, to move on from debuggers for a moment to undefined method for nil class. <laughs> I think as Rails developers that is going to be one of the most common errors that we come across and still I think <laughs> Yeah, and I think that as a beginner, that could really throw you off. Of what does that even mean? Yeah. So if if you have something like a Rails application dot credentials, and then you were trying to chain in, you know, maybe like AWS and then secret key, it's very easy to get that undefined method square brackets for nil class. If you do not have that top level AWS defined, so it's very overwhelming at first to get that error message along with the rest of the stack trace. If you have ever gotten a Java error, that's kind of what it kind of leads me or my brain initially goes back to where you get this huge wall of text that means absolutely nothing to me. So understanding how the error messages work in Ruby, I think, is really important. for our debugging. So there's line numbers in the backtrace that, you know, show up in your logs. And if it starts from one and then goes two, three, four, then that means the most important information or where it actually aired out is up at the top. But in newer Ruby versions, they actually reversed it. So the errors at the bottom and the backtrace kind of goes the reverse order. But That's usually got me at first. <laughs> yeah. usually there is some kind of file path with a colon and then a number that will tell you this is the file that we are having an issue with and then this is the line number in that file that threw the error so now you have somewhere that you can trace back and if you are in a situation where okay, this takes me to a class within that class a method. And in this method, it's doing something like current user dot active. And you're getting undefined method active for nil class. Well, why are we getting that error message? So you need to trace it back up to something else. You can take it to the initial uh, initializer of that class. But if you go back into your stack trace or in that error message, then in the lines above or in the second or third lines, wherever it is part of your application or in the file path of your application, you're going to see what called that method or what led to that method. So you can then start backtracing from there to say, okay, let me go to this other file to see why it called this method in this other class that eventually threw the error. And then you may see that you're passing nil for the current user or something else. You know, you can do some debugging there to see why is the variable that I'm expecting to be defined actually not defined.
0: Well, and that's where some of the other techniques come in, right? Because you start putting those logging statements or put s statements or, you know, whatever, so you can get a feel for what's there, right? And, and yeah, the, the call trace is what's telling you where to put it.
3: This, the backtrace in Ruby is tough. <laughs> and I think yeah. one of the the biggest things that got me at first was the the lack of separation between your code and external code like libraries and even to the point of like internal libraries right like ruby's internal libraries and what I mean by that is you know that it's hard to tell where in your code sometimes that the backtrace it really triggered from right like sure you could be calling some like third level libraries method incorrectly, but it's only because upstream of that, you, mm-hmm. you know, forgot to use the right object or something else, and because we set an environment Ruby, variable that it expected to have right. run into that, right? So it's it's not the
0: code where that is pointing at, it's something else.
3: I hate to say it, but one thing that has kind of obviated that whole process is typing. <laughs> And and use of something like Sorbet. I'm sorry, I'm uh, going to go throw up now. <laughs> but, you know, it's not without its own drawbacks, but that is one thing that it solves. But also, I do wish that the backtrace were, were a little more clear. And I, I don't know that we can make it more clear without making Ruby less expressive.
2: <laughs> so I think, so I, I want to I dig at that for just a second, because I think, yeah, there is like a class of problems that, Sorbet and other typing systems, right? Remove. But for example, I think that Chuck's example is like a really good example of one that it wouldn't fix, right? So when a library has expectations, right, that you aren't meeting and it isn't a typing expectation, right? Like Sorbet isn't going to fix that for you or something like that. But in that really just comes, in my opinion, like that kind of problem comes down to the fact that like all over in Ruby, we've just kind of Gotten. I mean, I think it's always been this way. There's like a little bit of like laziness, right? Where not in a bad way, just like, I don't know, people just are like, I'm just going to expect this stuff and maybe I don't document it well or I do document it. But because my library is being used by some other library, you know, other people don't catch up, you know, pick up on that. And I think there's a lot of ways that you can hit. I think the expectation problem actually is like one of the things that crops up all the time where the error occurs in your code but it's actually a third party library but it's really not their fault it's because you didn't know how to use it right like and i feel like that is the situation that i run into like all the time especially when i'm using something for the first or the second time or something like that right or it's i'm using an edge case like those kinds of problems like those don't go away because of typing or anything like that those only go away as you understand what you're using
3: better yeah, I almost wish there was like some kind of hints framework <laughs> where if you snap into the framework, you can use some kind of like hinting system that'll just like throw warnings or errors while you're using it and be like, I don't think you really meant this. It <laughs> pops up while, while you're <laughs> at it. We should... Exactly. Like Code Pilot, but for like, you know, forced assistance.
2: <laughs> Jeez. While you're at it, you should just have a, you know, you should know what I'm thinking framework. <laughs> just. I know, right? Pass.
3: Yeah, I mean that is what Code Pilot is, isn't it? <laughs> so a few I mean, things. That guessing,
0: but yeah, I'm going to drop here. So one of them is we were talking about the backtrace, and I was working on some code that heavily used uh, begin rescue end, and so they would rescue the error and then move on, right? Because we're oh, you mean spree? Oh, oh <laughs> no, it's the, it's these integrations that we've been writing for my contract. And you know, it's not my choice, it it, it makes it kind of hard. So what I started doing is, under each rescue, I would actually put e.backtrace.each, and then I would print each thing, because it gives you an array of strings that give you the backtrace, and so I would just print all the lines of the backtrace. And then let it move on, right? And yeah, it's not the way that I would love to do it, but there are trade-offs to switching, And it, anyway, so yeah anyway, so that that's been interesting, but it's it's been it's made it easy for me to start identifying, oh, it hit this unexpected situation, which raised this exception, which got handled here and then it moved on, but because I can go back through the log because I'm printing them to the log, I can go through and I can see what's going on. And so if you're running into that a, look at what you're rescuing and maybe what you shouldn't be rescuing and b. If you are rescuing, make sure you're still printing out the relevant information to the console or log or something so people can see what's going on.
1: Yeah. Um, I had an app where there were just exceptions, you know, rescue exception. Everywhere in the application, there were hundreds of them. Oh, I'm sure. Everything seemed to work, but when you ran into errors, (laughs) you have no idea why. And so I proposed, like, we need to fix this so we were actually handling these errors instead of just, you know, swallowing them. And so I got some pushback. So I set up a Slack notification. Anytime one of these errors got triggered, it just threw it into the general chat. And so our chat was just getting lit up all the time with oh, errors. Man. And so we actually started going back and fixing them.
2: This seems like a social problem. Or like <laughs> yeah, that's... not not a not a code problem.
1: <laughs> yeah. It definitely was, but
2: I mean, I, I agree, right? Like using rescues, using like the rescue end as sort of like a way to path through your code has some serious consequences, some of which Mm -hmm. have been like sort of brushed upon here. I work on a spree app, you know, it's one of the projects that I have and spree does this a lot. And I ended up like creating like custom error classes or whatever. And then, like, rescuing all the spree errors and like digging out, like pulling the stuff out of them and shoving them into custom errors to throw those instead. Like, it, that was my solution. I'm not even saying that that was great because we're not totally happy with that either. But like, it gets messy when you have this kind of a thing, and the solutions for it are not pretty either. Yeah. Well, and if you've got an experienced person doing it, there's usually
0: a reason, and they they made a trade off. Not always, but often. So
1: you know i do want to touch on the front end a bit because i think that's we're we're working on rails applications and especially with hotwire if we're dealing with hotwire kind of stuff have your dev console open because if you're developing something and if something is not working the way you want you may be losing valuable information in your dev console in the browser and that's especially true if you're working on stimulus or anything like that or turbo frames or streams, you might be basically ignoring these errors that really are relevant to the issues you're experiencing. And when you're asking for help, the first place you should look is your dev console to see if there's any JavaScript errors. Because if you don't get those resolved, then they may be what's actually the root cause of your problem.
0: Another angle on this that I'm running into with the work that I'm doing is that I'm hitting an API, right? and so you know, this is data from the back end that may not be coming through. Maybe may be logic on your front end for, for that matter, but you may just be consuming an API and it's the same kind of thing, right? Finding a way to print that payload you're getting, trying, finding a way to open that up so you can watch it go by while you're working is often extremely useful. But yeah, especially on the front end, I mean, it dumps all kinds of information in the console and you can customize it to dump all kinds of information in the console with console.log. And what's nice about that, too, is that you're not going to fill up or, you know, scroll too far past what you needed
2: like you can on the command line to, to get the information you need. I've definitely started wrapping APIs like pretty much all the time. I've even got it depends on the app, of course, but I definitely have like a couple apps where I have API, like, so I have models in my Rails environment, and then there's, you know, a model equivalent, right, on the other side. Mm-hmm. And then I have, like, an API model, and its job is just to basically, like, understand, like, what it's getting from the API, right, wrap it, and then, like, have a way to, like, convert it out. That way, you know, when I have problems, or they change the API, like, it's all consolidated there. And APIs are another place It's a lot tougher than it like looks to deal with.
1: And not only that, John, but being a third-party API, if you're consuming it, you are relying on that company still being there tomorrow. And if they're not, and you need to find an alternative, then you don't want to have to refactor a significant portion of your application to then use another technology or another service. Having it all contained within the API model, as you call it, I think it's a great idea because then you're just having to change one place and it's going to affect everything. And by doing that, you can still have it respond to your application, give the results back in the same format, but you're calling it differently to a different service. So there's definitely multiple benefits in going that route.
0: Well, another form of the benefit you're talking about there, Dave, is that maybe that company doesn't go away. Maybe that's exactly what I'm was hired to write my code against. But then they come to me and they say, hey, we also want to integrate with this other API that provides a similar sort of data, right? And so you can lift that structure for the one API library and just basically transpose it onto the other one and then you know be updating the endpoints and managing the data a little bit different. But you have something that you can immediately apply the other thing is, is that any logging or debugging code that you have in there that makes it easier to reason about what's going on comes with it. And so, you know, it, it's not just a question of do I have to change services that I'm com- connecting to, but it's also a portability issue when you have to uh, connect to something else.
2: Yeah, I that, that stuff kind of works, too. I definitely have had a case where the APIs were so different. So. I mean, I think, first of all, I'm a big fan of this, big fan of this, and I do think it works most of the time. However, I've totally had two APIs that just, you know, one was more restful than the other, right? Mm -hmm. And like, and then that that made it really hard for that to work. But outside of weird cases like that, yeah. Yeah, but my point point there
0: is you effectively have the structure kind of like what Rails gives you with the CRUD, where it's, you know, I know I'm going to have to retrieve this object. I know I'm going to have to post this object, right? It may not even be the same object type as the other thing, but you've got, effectively, you've got your framework together for that stuff, right? And so those
2: operations can all happen even
0: if the endpoints don't look similar.
1: Yeah.
2: Oh yeah, I I just meant that like one was like a, they were were just organized differently, Mm -hmm. right? And so the other side, in one API I had like models, you know, over there that I could kind of query. And then on the other version of it, there were like events, right? And so then I just, my structure didn't fit so well. But that was, that was a rare case. And most of the time, that's not really how it works.
1: And it helps prevent vendor lock in, which to me is very important. But
2: yeah, I mean, I would say like the other thing, if you're, if you're doing APIs, okay. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, we're kind of off of troubleshooting, but like if you're doing API stuff, the other thing that I found that made my life easier is, actually like is is complicated if if things get complicated enough that i'm caring about this stuff then having like some sort of event system to put stuff like an event days based, event-based database like you know that's that's helpful that way i could just shove it all in there and have all of history if i need to like re uh, interpret for example all of the stuff that i'm getting from an api yep trying to think what else
0: i do to troubleshoot stuff what do you what do you guys do for like production or running on a system that you don't own, right? Because so a lot of times, you know, Dave said this earlier, you know, you basically replicate the data, you stick it on your own machine and you run it. But what I'm finding, especially in the situation, and I'm not going to complain about the system that they're using on my client, even though it sucks and, you know, is is severely restrictive and doesn't need to be. But a lot of times, you know, we have to run it against third party data and so it has to be you know up where the credentials exist and the data exists and stuff like that and so it's not something i can debug locally and w- w- what do you all do there i mean i have some ideas and there are some approaches that we've taken but i'm curious what you all do with that charge them more money for making your life harder
2: <laughs> um i mean okay it's going to take you longer to do it right like right. i think i think effectively at the end of the day like all of the things come down to it's going to be harder to do it if there's more restrictions so if mm-hmm. you are you know being hired by somebody that means that you need to charge them more if if it's your own company then you have to like make choices on whether you think that now you i mean it's going to cost you more right like your your employees are going to spend more time working on it but i mean the it depends like if do i know right like it kind of depends on like if i know for a fact that i'm going to have to do this again tomorrow then then i'm going to then i'm going to do some work today to make my life easier tomorrow right but if i don't know that and i think that it's just a one off i may just be like all right let me get my credentials out like log into the production server or something if if that's available to me right and like do some you know some debugging up there and not save anything if that's not possible right so like for example like if i have a system where the process results so uh, I think Spree is a good example of this. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about a different place where where I did this work, but I don't have like, but it was a custom job, so I can't really describe it or whatever. But like Spree is a great example of this. As you're going through checkout, it like saves the order like repeatedly, right? So debugging that in production is hard because now you have a real order, you know, and there's potentially consequences from that. But if your system like saves everything in RAM, like it's a lot easier to debug you might have to copy data, let's say that you can't get it out of production, you might have to like manually copy data, or, mm-hmm. you know, like, I mean, it gets hard. Like, the more locked down it, it gets, right? Like, you get to a point where you are like, okay, well, I can debug this, but there are consequences. Either I have to copy data out of production because I'm not sure why this is broken, right? Or I have to log into production, which I'm not supposed to be on, and I have to say, hey, I'm creating a test scenario or whatever, right? And, and, and go with that. Like, it gets really tough.
3: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to address that. I mean, the, the one that comes to mind is Martin Fowler's event sourcing to snapshot things as you go along. I, I know that I've used that before in debugging just to capture all of the steps that the code goes through for a specific object, right?
2: So we're at the point where we're adding something to our application to capture stuff for debugging.
3: Right. I mean, going back to the Chuck's question of like, how do you handle like third party APIs or or things like that, right? That are systems that are external to your own. I mean, personally, I find myself leaning toward companies that offer products that provide mocking APIs, Mm -hmm. right? Where I can literally test it and be able to create my own hooks using their libraries and know for sure because they made the libraries that it will be as close as possible to production as possible, right? Uh, and an wish. example, of that, example of that is Twilio, you know, who provides a uh, mock APIs so that you can create your own web hooks and mock an endpoint from Twilio and get responses. I mean, I know personally in the past, I mean, many years ago now, I wrote one of those right, in RSpec and, you know, it broke maybe a year or so later as they changed their response or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I oh, mean, the, that's the alternative.
0: I right? like that as a canary in the coal mine, though. My integration code works, it works, it works, it works, Is busted.
3: Right. <laughs> I mean, it's it's okay, but, you know, it it's the wrong time to get the signal, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I'll tell yeah. you
0: a couple of things that we do. Some of the things we do is just third-party services, right? So they have the log- logging. Actually, the logging isn't connected yet, but the, their main primary app that is one of the endpoints I'm hitting or one of the services I'm working with, they have a third-party services that all their logs get sent to, right? And so that's helpful because you can search them, right? Because my grep my skills are okay, but that's no fun. The other one is the bug tracking systems like... I'm trying to think of some that have sponsored us recently, Raygun or Sentry, right, or some. And so I use Sentry on my stuff. And yeah, you know, if if I put an exception in because it's, it's a, this really shouldn't happen if it does bail out and die, then, right, then it'll let me know that it bailed out and died. And so, you know, I'll have it throw an exception and, and I'll catch it. And so th- those are some ways... But yeah, often it's it's a behavior that's technically legal but is not desirable or, or is unexpected and those get harder to deal with. Those are harder to figure out.
2: Yeah, I guess I, I, didn't, I wasn't even thinking about that because I think I operate off the assumption, right, that everybody is using something like that. Yeah, that
0: assumption would be flawed. And it's a surprisingly low number of people that that. use them. (laughs) Uh, It's it. I I never cease to be amazed that, wait, you don't have this instrumented. Well, how in the heck do you know what's going on? then? Uh,
2: Yeah. All right. I accept. I accept that my that that's flawed. Yeah. I mean, I definitely operate off the assumption that you're using that at this point. Like they're so helpful to have. I'm thinking about use cases where like you got this exception, or maybe you didn't, right? Like maybe you didn't catch an exception because it's not throwing an error, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like trying to find like what the, you know, you you have bad data stored in your database now or something like that, right? That's how you discover that you have this problem, not because it's throwing an error in your, you know, error logging system, yeah yeah that gets tough i so this actually goes back to one of the things like if you're doing this if your error is coming in from an api right i think one of the things that like i mentioned before i think is useful here which is like using something like kafka or something right like store all your events as they happen right and and then have a history because then first of all you can recover if everything goes really badly and you know well, crap, got to blow it up, right? Let's just replay the whole thing, right? So you have that as your final failback. But at the same time, you also don't have to replay all of history. You can just say, oh, well, this is the particular event that caused the issue and I can replay history starting from then, right? Right. Once I figure it out and, and fix the problem. So like, I mean, it may or may not help you drill down, but it creates a scenario where, Once you finally figure out the error, which can sometimes take a while with some of these weird, you know, things that we're talking about, right? Like we're definitely talking about non-normal, this happened in production, I'm having a really hard time figuring out like what caused it, maybe it's a race condition or something. Then once I figure everything out, I now have to deal with all of the data that, you know, happened, you know, since that time. And mucking with that when it's a live system is always really hard so having like a way to recover once i finally figure it out i think is actually important of course kafka is kind of kafka and all ilk like that are somewhat complicated and adding those to your system i don't think is something you should do day one that's something i think you should do a couple years in when you're like okay we've pretty much got all the features done but now we need a you know recovery system because we have customers and stuff's going
3: on yeah you know that that reminds me of uh the Rails Instrumentation API, <laughs> right, where it basically is that signal that you can capture at any time. And that's kind of like a great place to start. I know I've started there before and just hooked into almost anything that I you know, needed as a separate log, right? Say, so what are you hooking into as a separate log here? Rails Instrumentation APIs. Mm-hmm. So there's one for like Active okay. Record if you're worried about the database or... Uh, you know model validations or or there's like a whole huge list of things you can capture that are just broadcasted
2: got it so you're you're talking about like what just like logging it
3: or even yeah. filtering like using it as kind of like a, a place to debug things that are happening in a very specific place is it embarrassing? i mean' that makes I didn't sense. know this was here
2: <laughs> i mean nope because i forgot about it until like <laughs> you you described what it was and then i was like oh yeah that right like because i've literally never used it for this for sure huh
3: yeah i mean there's a there's the famous potato middleware that you can create right where you can capture the rack requests as they come in if you have some low level thing with your routing or something like that i know i've used that before i've done
2: that i didn't realize that was the same thing Um,
3: i mean they're very similar i think they it's it's all tied in together with rail ties and stuff
2: yeah well there goes my weekend i'm gonna play, play with this anyway yeah. Okay. So, so back on troubleshooting,
3: like, I feel like these are
2: all <laughs> things that happen, right? Like, so we're like, totally talking. like, I don't know about you guys, I'm presuming it's the same thing where like, somebody says something and then like, I think back to a time when I had a problem, right? And, and really, I'm like, speaking from there, is like, I'm talking about all this stuff. And I feel like the thing about troubleshooting is like you, from like, the basic level, like, if you can't, geez, I mean, figuring out like, where in the backtrace, right, like your nil exceptions coming from, like, that's definitely day one, step one stuff, right? Then you deal with third party libraries causing those issues, right? Like, and you start like, that's, that's what I feel like intermediate developers are like, struggling through. And then like, you know, obviously, this might happen to you earlier than it should, of course, that can always happen. But then you start getting into things where like, you're having to deal with race conditions, because you're doing JavaScript on a page or uh, you're probably not going to have too many race conditions in Ruby, but JavaScript all the time. Or you might have to deal with like, you know, those API things, right? Like, and so these are all, I guess, I guess we're just talking about techniques and things that you might have to pull from in those cases, because that's what bothers us. But mm-hmm. we really were talking about troubleshooting. Just we were talking about our own, what we did to troubleshoot something.
3: Yeah, it's all made up. Well, yes. I mean, it comes down to it. You yeah, you change how you troubleshoot, <laughs> you know, every time.
2: Yeah. Well, something didn't work very well last time, so you're like, I don't want to do that again. Let me try this other thing. Oh, well, that didn't work either. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, troubleshooting is all about getting tools in your toolbox, right? Vaguely knowing how to use them, and and then you know, just trying a tool out, right? You're like, ah, oh, let's see if this helps me to figure out my problem. Let's see if this helps me, and you just go down the list makes sense yeah and
0: it's just funny because yeah a lot of this is rather formulaic it's try this look at this and yeah it then it's down to how things are set up and what you can find so
3: someday somebody will get a a stack overflow gem that just listens for common exceptions and <laughs> gives you the answer right a nice little log message
2: i mean it's pretty crazy like I feel like when stuff is out for a while, people like write these scripts, right? That like go and test a whole bunch of like commonly found errors, right? And then like they wrap it up in some sort of tool for you. And then then we get this then then eventually that gets merged into like whatever this big project is, right? And then then you just get new errors that just weren't included in the old thing because now you're able to do more cool stuff. <laughs> And so you push your application farther and you're back to square one, which is like all the old errors are gone, but now you're getting new errors because you're doing things that you weren't doing before. So it just doesn't really end.
3: Job security.
0: Cool. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. i try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot. Right. I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on. You can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, The rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. We'll we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular View, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up, and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. the The full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up.
2: All right, well, let's do some picks. John, you wanna start us out with picks? Yeah, I'll get us rolling. Uh, so first of all, I had an idea earlier and I kind of forgot about it, but that's okay because we rolled past it. But I mean, I definitely am gonna recommend you know pry as always i haven't checked out jarred yet so i can't really recommend that but it does look very fun i'll leave that for valentino to recommend if if he's doing that but yeah definitely big fan of pry if you're troubleshooting and things also big fan of error logging i don't know who's sponsor i don't know if anyone's sponsoring us or whatever on this or whatever but like nope. for me like it doesn't really matter century roll bar I don't even remember some of the others, but they're all basically like one in the same Honey Badger, Airbrake, Mm -hmm. whatever. If you need to roll your own, there's Airbrake, E-R-R. Isn't it Airbrake or Airbit? Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, Airbit, E-R-R-Bit. So, you know, you can set up a server and do it at home kind of thing if that's your thing. But yes, definitely having one of those. So whoever our sponsor is, I guess I'm recommending them. (laughs) presuming that one of them is sponsoring us
0: not at the moment i feel like that's i'm
2: I'm talking to a couple of them but
0: the most recent ones were
2: uh, raygun and sentry so got it i mean i will say that like in my experience there are differences between them right Mm -hmm. you know whether that's pricing or like some feature but you know for the basic thing you need to have one of these in your Mm -hmm. app because i mean you don't need to have one but it's so helpful to have one and it makes it they do a great job of like consolidating those errors in like one place and just helping you get to the error faster, right? It's not something that you can't do on your own. It just, it speeds up the process and that's super helpful. So I recommend you have one of those. Nice. That's that's all I got. I don't have any food things this week because I've not been doing much of that.
0: Food. I smoked a couple of uh, pork shoulders the other day. Fed 60 oh, kids nice. on it. Oh, so good. I love my Traeger. Anyway, and I, I've been eating, just not been trying yeah. to find good food all right valentino what are your picks
3: yeah i would go check out ruby jard that could be a pick <laughs> pretty great debugger another tool i use often with just ruby scripts in general is rb trace it's like s trace but for ruby uh pretty great to see all the different method calls that get called throughout your ruby script uh, i've used it to debug some kind of weird obscure ruby stuff a really great tool a kind of entertaining article, uh, one of my coworkers wrote a while ago. Uh, Eric Sellen had this really weird issue show up with some of our development environments that we have that we were moving to the cloud, and we were seeing some like packet drops and disconnection connection issues happening for people that were on one coast or the other of the U.S. And he wrote this great article on what ended up being the answer, <laughs> and it's some obscure networking issue and related to AWS, and I think you might get a kick out of it. It's called, It Turns Out Deep Thought Was Wrong, 42 Is Not the Answer. (laughs) And the last pick I have is, uh, I'm really excited about the Rails Foundation that just opened up the company I work for, Doximity. We joined as one of the core founding members, and I'm really looking forward to see what comes out of it. It looks really awesome, and uh, I don't know, I, I hope it can bring some more, like, educational documentation foundation and make it just easier for people to get started. That's it for me.
0: Nice. I'm going to jump in with my board game pick. I've got a bunch. Taught at the board game convention again this fall and it was fun and I learned a bunch of games but I'm not going to pick any of those actually. So we got together with our friends on Sunday night. My wife and I did. It's so nice having teenagers just like, we're leaving, bye. And yeah, we played a game called, what is it? Betrayal at House on the Hill. And I think it's based on a book or TV show or video game or something, I can't remember. But the premise is is that a a bunch of teenagers go up to the house on the hill and they start exploring it. And as you explore it, eventually you trigger a haunting and the haunting is chosen at semi-random based on how you triggered the haunting. And then usually what happens is one of the players is a betrayer and then the rest of the players become heroes. And the heroes are trying to execute their win condition and escape. And Betrayer is trying to stop them and execute their win condition. And so it goes from a fully cooperative game to a one versus all. And uh, anyway, it's it was fun. We had a good time. And so I'm going to pick it. It really is that simple. Board Game Geek lists it as a 2.39. So it's pretty easy for the casual gamer to pick up and play. And yeah, really enjoyed that. My kids love it. So that that's another uh, shout-out for that. My six-year-old likes to be involved, and as long as we're able to tell her what to do and help her read some of the cards, she's fine. She can mostly read the cards and stuff, but yeah, it's just kind of at that level. My 10-year-old and all the older, older kids are totally good playing it, so. I guess he's 11 now. My 11-year-old and most of my older kids are good playing it, so. Anyway, just gonna shout those out, and then, yeah, I've got a lot of stuff coming together, at Top End Devs. Book Club starts next month, it's uh, Clean Architecture with Uncle Bob, and he's said that he's going to come to some of the calls about the book, so go to topendevs.com slash book club, and then I'm actually launching the membership, and the way I've decided to do that is uh, the first 20 people who get in are going to get it for $39, and then I'm going to raise it $10, in the next 20 people, 49 59 69 I eventually plan to sell the membership for 149 I am going to have a light version of the membership for like 75 or $100 that just gets you access to fewer things is basically what it is. It's kind of the fundamentals that we're putting out there. But anyway, if if you're interested and you want to get in at a super low price, I hate framing it as a Black Friday deal. That's kind of what it is. Then go check it out. And that's just topendevs.com slash sign up. And then, yeah, we've got a bunch of other stuff coming, but I'm not going to go and, and and talk about all that stuff. Um, I'm also launching another podcast. It's going to be uh, Command Your Coding Career. And I'm going to be talking about how to get ahead in your career instead of having to grind for five years or 10 years to show that you have enough experience to get the job you want. We're going to show you the other ways to demonstrate to employers or, you know, your current employer or whoever that you have the skills to do whatever it is you want. So anyway, we'll talk about that and we'll talk about content creation and speaking and stuff. So, and and we're going to be talking about a lot of that same stuff as part of the membership. So yeah, other picks. I'm still listening to the Keepers of the Lost Cities books and I just started the next one. It's called Load Star. And yeah, so far so good. Like I said, it's, it's not like the most riveting book that I've ever listened to, but it's, it's good. It's good enough to enjoy it and listen to it. So I'm going to pick that. And lately I've been watching NCIS. And so I'm going to pick that too. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this sucker up. And
2: till next time, folks, Max out. Take care, everybody.
0: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.